pick up your mat and walk the man by the pool of Bethesda. Jesus could have healed that man. But no, you pick up your mat and walk and then I'll meet you there. And so for me, as a humanist theologian, I put that in conversation with liberation theology and says that uh, when humanity decides to get up and move, God will meet us there. In particular, marginalized communities, when we shake off whatever it is that told us we can't move, we shouldn't move. The minute we do that, God will meet us there and then we can achieve freedom, justice, equality. Welcome to Everything is Spiritual, a podcast from Soul Care Urban Retreat Center. We're talking with local folks, faith leaders, creatives, thinkers, and community advocates, getting personal about their faith and spirituality and how it shows up in their daily life and work. I'm Kelly Skinner, your host, and I'm sharing these heart-centered conversations to invite you to become more aware that everything is spiritual and to deeply connect with what is most true and alive in your own everyday life. All right, welcome friends to the Everything is Spiritual podcast and the guest today is somebody who I had the opportunity to see earlier this year at the U of I Interfaith Conference. Uh, I'm joined today by Reverend Terrence Thomas, who's the senior pastor of Bethel AME Church, which is the oldest African-American church in Champaign County. It's even older than the U of I. The theme of that conference was racial justice and interfaith cooperation. And he sat on a panel talking about how church communities from different faiths and denominations combat racism. One of the things that impressed me the most about his participation was that he spoke pretty plainly and powerfully and said what needed to be said, even if that made some of the people uncomfortable. And as I've told you before, I'm called to do what I can to provoke wholeness, and I recognize the kindred spirit. And so I couldn't wait to get him on the podcast and let him open up and share his story. So thank you for joining us, Reverend Thomas. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you. So for people who don't know you, um, can you just kind of describe yourself a little bit, who you are, what you do, what you care about, that kind of stuff? All right. Uh, for those who are listening, I am the Reverend Terrence L. Thomas. I am uh, an itinerant elder, ordained an itinerant elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, it's the oldest black denomination. Uh, grew out of the protest movement of Richard Allen and Absalom Jones in 1787 and which they got tired of being harassed by white Methodists and St. George's in Philadelphia. And, and then they broke off and formed their own denomination. And it's a lot of integral histories into that, but as it stands, I'm ordained in AME tradition. I've been ordained since 2018. Uh, Bethel is my second church and this is my third year in Champaign. I am a native of the South side of Chicago, proud native. I love my city. Try to get back when I can. I'm 46. Just experienced a 46th birthday this past August. Father of five beautiful, wonderful children, Centrale, Devin, Anaya, Charles, and Emerson. Father of two bonus children, uh, other Anaya and Josiah. And I am loving life right now. In addition to my pastoral duties, I am the executive director of Bridgewater Sullivan Community Life Center, a faith-based nonprofit that helps people connect to resources, job training, etc. 
I think awesome. that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, I that's like a, old school seventies music and whiskey. <laughs> what specific kind of whiskey, though? Uh, in this season, I have fallen in love with the Japanese whiskey. Mm. Last season, it was Uncle Nearest, mm. uh, but in this season, the Japanese whiskey, the Hibikis, uh, they have they have kind of won me over. That's awesome. I'm a bourbon fan myself, so okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So you talk about yourself as a liberation and humanist theologian. So, you know, some people aren't familiar with what those terms are. Can you kind of give us a primer on what that means? Absolutely. So when I state that I am a liberation and humanist theologian, what I'm saying is two things. Is I'm, I'm putting two theologies together. First, liberation theology, as outlined by the late Reverend Dr. James Cone that in essence says God is on the side of the oppressed. God is on the side of the marginalized. God works and has worked when God showed up to liberate people. It was given a name in 66 by Cone, but it's always been with us. It was the theology that Harriet Tubman operated out of. It was the theology that Sojourner Truth operated out of, Nat Turner, Denmark VC, uh, Toussaint Leovertour, all of those who fought against enslavement. It was the liberation uh, the theology of Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker. So it, it was always there. Cone just tried to put language to it. It just simply means God is on the side of the oppressed. The more arc of the universe moved towards justice and that in the end, we will be victorious. Uh, humanist theologian, and I know in, in our in our context, being humanist is kind of frowned on, right? But what I'm really saying is that the power of God resides in us. And so a humanist theologian would argue that Everything that we need done, God has already empowered us or will empower us to do. And so I use often as an example of that Jesus's miracle on feeding the 5000. Jesus, of course, if you're a believer, a Christian believer, we know Jesus could have called food from the heavens. But what did he do? He had his disciples gather first and then move. Pick up your mat and walk the man by the pool of Bethesda. Jesus could have healed that man. But no, you pick up your mat and walk and then I'll meet you there. And so for me, as a humanist theologian, I put that in conversation with liberation theology and says that uh, when humanity decides to get up and move, God will meet us there. In particular, marginalized communities, when we shake off whatever it is that told us we can't move, we shouldn't move. The minute we do that, God will meet us there and then we can achieve freedom, justice, equality, lives unhindered by systems of oppression. Mm, Really like that. So what does that mean in context of right now? Like what, what does that mean for us? Not in this kind of intellectual, you know, this is the description of this theology, but what does that mean in action? So I would say it means this. So let's take Champaign County. You know, we've been experiencing uptick in violence. We got systemic issues in the simplest terms. When humanity gets off his ass, God will meet us there. And God is on our side and God is not on the side. I firmly believe of those who seek to do harm. So when we have two epiphanies here, when left of center, progressive minded folks, especially left of center, spiritual folks have two epiphanies, then I think we'll experience a change. One, God is on our side. God has always been on our side. The moral arc of the universe, right, bends towards justice. However, that bending, that activation won't happen until we get up off our ass and, and start doing the labor. We got to gather the fish and loaves and then we'll see the miracle of, of feeding the 5000. And so that's kind of the basic thing in our in our present age. And you've seen it, right? It's a little something called the civil rights movement. It's a little something called the black power movement. 
this little something uh, we saw over the summer, you know, wasn't as concise as many would have liked it. But when the people rose and rose in one voice and rose to do uh, justice, love, mercy, God met, God met, God met him out there. Um, I think in our present age is requiring us to fight back against the fake Christians who occupy the right of center, the evangelicals. And I want to I don't know what your sponsorships or things like that. So I'm not suggesting any every conservative Christian is automatically an enemy. I'm saying the evangelical Christianity, as it's often purported and and shown in the media. But the difference is they're willing to get up and do something. And we, to your point, I like the way you say that, spend most of our days intellectualizing, pontificating and wherefore to and thou is. And, you know, what does get up merely mean? You know, that kind of stuff. No, it means get up like it's some stuff you don't have to over intellectualize. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. And of course, you're speaking about liberation theology through the context of the black community, uh, mm -hmm. especially the black community in America. One of the things that I find really interesting about liberation theology is that there's definitely different marginalized groups who have taken a lot of comfort within liberation theology and, and use it as a way to help them frame and fight against the oppression. And so I know there's uh, a lot of liberation theology that came out of the Latin American countries and there's womenist liberation theology. Absolutely. Um, there's black liberation theology. And so how do you see some of that, some of that intersectionality um, and, and is that important or should everybody, I guess, is that important? Is the intersectionality? Yes, important? absolutely. In fact, a lot of that, you know, there are some scholarly debates about Gustavo Gutierrez or, or Cohn. Most scholars say Cohn came first, but Gustavo kind of wrote it out first, mm -hmm. but it was Cohn who conceptualized. But I think it's important because the Latin America in context does have power and, and you should be familiar with the Latin American especially since they actively had revolutions in their spaces grounded in theological frameworks, right? I think the womanist and feminist theologians, many of which who came into this conversation critiquing Cone, who does not touch on that a lot, they're important. Our, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters have a conception and theology of God. So I think anybody serious about justice work, you may not have to master all of those but you should understand that there are different frameworks. There are different ways of looking at it. And there's an intersection to it. There's a there's an intersection. So one of the challenges, and I'll, I'll name it directly, my community sometimes has, is that we don't understand intersectionality. Right. Uh, and when I say my community, I'm speaking specifically largely the black church and sometimes the black community as a whole, but definitely the black church. We don't understand intersectionality. So, yes, we can cry against racism and definitely as we should. But then we struggle with classism and gender. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the Bible is clear on these issues, right? When it comes to race, <laughs> the Bible is, oh, we got to look at it. We got to investigate. We got to read with a, a critical eye. We got to read with a hermeneutic of suspicion. And then when it comes to these two class, gender, sexuality, mm -hmm. uh, the word of God is the word of God. It says what it says. Well, did, did you feel that way when we talked about the curse of Ham? Did you feel that way in Song of Solomon when they said, I am black, but beautiful, depending on translation? Uh, you you exegeted your way around that. That's not what that means. And that's not. And I know slave and, they, you, you know, you do all that. But then when it comes to these three categories, uh, sexuality, gender and class, then suddenly you don't have that exegesis. And so I think that 
a big part of our struggle is we don't get justice because we don't know how to do justice and we don't know how to do justice because we haven't been intersectional in our approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really important uh, critique of that framework and and a struggle that people who buy into um, or who align with liberation theology uh, get to have continuing conversations about. So I really appreciate that you said Cohen is a, a forefather of that movement. And so how has that theology for you shaped or been shaped by your image of God? You know, a lot of us were raised, well, I was raised traditionally in the in the Catholic Church, and what I was raised with was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, and um, that's not what my image of God is anymore. And so, as somebody within raised within the Black Church, who also may have been highly influenced by the institutional mainstream white church. <laughs> did you receive those kinds of images as well? And do you have a different image now? I did. Um, my, my mother, I grew up Jehovah's Witness. My mother was devout, still love him. Part of my formative years. I still got a lot of respect for him. Uh, but I did see a lot of images. Now, I didn't see a lot of white God images. Jehovah's Witnesses don't put a lot of God mm-hmm. images, if any. But I did see a lot of white Jesus and white angels and, and that kind of thing. And for the longest time, I remember growing up thinking God was an old white man behind a desk, mm-hmm. right? Uh, like a high school principal. Uh, with liberation <laughs> You're going to be in trouble. <laughs> right, right. All of that, you're going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. But what liberation theology has done, and it kind of came in two ways. The first way was through my undergraduate work, African-American studies, black studies, as I call it, and, and encountering the critique of this in the writers now, a lot of these writers were not Christian, but they were critiquing the imagery of Christians, right? So that was the first thing that made me kind of switch. But then when I got to seminary and really began to like jump into it, it has helped me reinforce that which I had been feeling since coming into Black Studies is that God, the historical Jesus looks like me or a variation of me. He does not look like the Jesus that's occupied every public space, that Christianity is an African religion. It is an Eastern religion that was homogenized and co-opted by the West. And it also it, it, it helped me resolve some internal conflicts I've have had around blackness and Christianity. You know, when, when Christianity gets beat up about being the slave master's religion or, or justifying the oppression of others, it helps shut that off. Mm-hmm. And so now I, I do. I mean, my favorite picture, you can't see it from this wall, is the Ebony Magazine of March 69, Black Jesus. Mm. My favorite Good Times episode. To the <laughs> day I leave this earth will be Black Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. The Adult Swim TV show, Black Jesus. And I think that there's something empowering to that. Um, I think it's something self-corrective. What would it look like for a generation had they been raised on that? The mm-hmm. Jesus, the Son of God, uh, depending on your theology, God incarnate looks like you. What would it have done to a generation of white people, a generation of black people? Will we have this today? Because it's been said, and I agree with it, how you imagine God is a reflection of your realities and how you see God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then how you treat and interact with other people. 
So if you imagine, if you, whatever you internalize as your image and, and relationship with God, then bleeds out into your relationship with others and how you want to be living up to that expectation of God. Yeah. So it's more a reflection of you than an actual reflection of the nature of God. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think also too, if if for no other reason, it challenges people. Like even when you think of the notion of and I'm gonna get this wrong, I know I am, but I remember being in a seminary and somebody argued the point God was transgender and could switch genders as needed. And God there since God has no gender, uh it, it that's in, in the concept of transgenderness, and I, I never thought of it. First time, he, like the first three sentences, I think this is my first week in seminary. I was about to faint. So I was like, oh, my God, this is the most, oh, the Lord is going to destroy this building. But then as I began to hear the argument, it helped me see and even re- reassess a lot of what I was taught. And so I think that's where these theologies really hammer home. It, it forces you to engage your your presets, your bias. It forces you to engage all the bullshit that you were taught. And so, you know, sort of like critical race theory, it, 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 it hits you literally in the face like this is not what it's been. You are making a mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the challenges that I've seen is that I do believe that people who go to seminary or do this learning do get transformed in the way that they look at things. And so how are you as a pastor helping to transform your congregation or take what you've learned and share that with people who haven't had that level of training and education as you, um, who are Uh, swimming in, in the things, maybe some misreads. Yeah. I, so it's funny because uh, depending on your church, uh, my church is kind of a mixed bag. Great people love, love them to death. But it is a mixed bag on bringing the academic seminary stuff in there because of what you're dealing with is deconstructing a lifetime of folk. And one of my favorite movies, The Matrix, I love when Morpheus say we don't free a mind after a certain point because it can't handle it. It it will reject fundamentally what you're saying. And so I, I deal with that a lot. I'm trying to free your mind and you're like, nope, that's not what it is. Nope. Uh, uh, I love my white Jesus. Nope. I don't care about all of that. And it's frustrating. So that's the one hand, the people. The other side of it is, for me personally, it was transformative. For me personally, it took me to the to the next level. For me personally, it was the most amazing experience I've done academically. Um, and it does help me pastor better. Like it, it, I, I struggle when I hear colleagues say seminary doesn't prepare you for pastoring. Does it sit down and give you a handbook on how to make budgets and run meetings. No, but if you've been paying attention in those classes, there's a real life example of, or, you know, or theoretical example of what you're dealing with running a church is okay. That's nothing but X. How do you assign delegation? How do you uh, pick assignments? How do you resolve conflict, theological conflict, uh, evangelism? I mean, literally Jesus evangelized. So you got a memo, you know, it helps you critically think. I tell people seminary is not designed to affirm your calling is help you intellectualize and rationalize and understand your calling. 
And so you learn the difference between Jesus evangelism and Paul evangelism. And I think once you you start learning these kind of things, you can apply them to your context. Mm -hmm. You can apply them to where you're sitting and not be all over the map. Hmm. Do you have a maybe a story about how that's shown up for you in your work? The clearest and probably best way it's shown up for me in my work is around the notion of sexuality and gender. If you would have caught me 2014, 2013, I was politically left of center, theologically right of center. So Mm -hmm. I had this huge cognitive disconnect. And so I wouldn't have done things like assist and take back the night rallies. I wouldn't have made my church a safe space for LGBTQ people. I wouldn't lobby or fight on their behalf. I wouldn't include them in conversations like there's this intentionality that shows up in my work. And I do not always get it right, but there's a willingness to engage and learn. There's a willingness to engage and learn. I believe that I show. And ultimately, I affirm the humanity and rights of all people. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I want my rights and humanity affirmed. So I do justice because I want to receive justice. Yeah, I hope I answered you. So that's just some of the ways it shows up. The Women's History Month sermon series where I don't preach. I only preach in women. The, the honoring, lifting up sexual assault. October's Domestic Violence or Sexual Assault Month. I get mm-hmm. them confused. But we're in the thrones of that. And by acknowledging that and even finding a way to put it in worship, I think affirms and shows my commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were talking a little bit about kind of the deconstruction that maybe people need to go through when they start learning um, some different, maybe that that the, the faith that they grew up with isn't necessarily um, whole and isn't leading us uh, towards uh, justice and, and kingdom work. And so one of the things that I think for me has come to light through my own faith is that um, there's a lot of oppression baked into our institutional Christianity. <laughs> yes. And so how do you go about addressing that oppression baked within the institution and not abandon the institution itself? I think tell the truth. I believe in telling the truth. So we are in white supremacist society, capitalist society. There's no way that our institutions have not been touched. And I think you start there from education. You know, when people get on me about worshiping that white man's Jesus, I point out some to to, depend on who they are, that you have that white man's education. Right. Because you didn't learn an African language. You didn't learn the African numeric system. You learned what we learned over here. And so. I think it's critical to acknowledge what happened, investigate what stopped it, you know, do a full workup, if you will. So when people tell me all the time, you know, do you know there was Christians in the Klan? I do. I'm well aware there was Christians in the Klan. I also know that there were Christians that fought the Klan. Mm-hmm. Do I give up on the institution? Do I do I stop going to the bank because banks are exploitive? I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if that's wise to give up on that institution. Do I stop voting? Because voting sometimes is is problematic. I don't know if I should do that. I don't know if that's wise. So when it comes to the church, I hold the same thing. Where we historically was wrong, and I'll I'll say it from the pulpit, we were wrong about this. We missed the boat, but we're committed to doing better. And so I think that's what keeps me inspired 
and going, that there is a commitment, however fragile, however far down in the universe, there is a commitment to do better. Mm-hmm. And I feel like sometimes, again, that liberation theology is so looking at the oppressor from the perspective of the oppressed that um, there's then an issue with when people who are oppressed become the oppressor um, and when the tables get turned. And it's that changing the institution and starting new institutions actually create the same kinds of institutions that you were running away from. Right. And it's, it's that's, that's really, really hilarious that you say that. It's really hilarious that you lift that up because it does happen. It's this animal farm thing, right? And that's why it, it's critical to know other perspectives. And I think you get the animal farm concept of the pigs taking over, you know, becoming worse than man. I think that you get that when you don't understand that marginalized groups, there can be nuance in that. So like most black folks for years, I constructed LGBTQIA folks as white, right? And the black folks in there were these anomalies, but that's a white lifestyle. But then as I got to seminary and started moving through the academy, I realized, you know, it's a lot, a lot of people of color, man, a lot of, a lot of marginalized folks, a lot of poor folks, black folks, you know. And so then those conversations, especially seminary, made me step back and say, okay, okay, where's your theory wrong? Because it's not an all white thing, you know. So I think let's take what's happening in the popular culture. I absolutely agree Dave Chappelle critiques whiteness. I think how he's going about it is problematic. Because you're picking a subset of whiteness, but it also has plenty of our people and you're inadvertently causing harm. And so you can talk about whiteness and totality in all the subgroups inside of whiteness without picking on or lifting up a particular subgroup you have an alt with. And I think that comes from not stepping back and looking at what does it mean? And so my sister, Reverend Tennille Power, always talks about when we have these conversations, you are oppressed as a man because of race and class, but I'm oppressed as a woman because race, class and gender. So depending on what rooms we walk into, 9.5 out of 10, you're going to get treated with a higher degree of reverence because you're a man. And I I struggled to hear that until one day I just listened to what she was saying and listened to her point of view. And so for me, that's where it gets the rubber meets the road when we talk about you got to empathize with, with people. You got to say, hey, listen, this is something here. I don't know what it is, but I want to let you know that I understand it or I'm trying to understand it. I want you to know that I'm trying to feel you without that. I mean, that's that's the very essence of white supremacy. What you know, I don't have to understand your perspective. It's my way of the highway. If you're not a rich, straight white, uh, I, I don't have to understand you. And that's what keeps it going. So I do believe any liberation theologian and the humanist theologian committed to doing justice has to look out at the other parts of the community and say, who am I helping and who am I harming? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really like your emphasis on the necessary listening. And that's not something that we've been trained to do very well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have it. We have, we have not. Do you 
use any kind of contemplative prayer or any ways to help you hone in on those listening skills? Uh, not quite. I did. Uh, I was training to be a CP supervisor, clinical pastoral education supervisor. And so after nine units of CPE, 10 units, I lost count. I kind of learned how to sit and listen, how to, how to say, hey, I didn't understand it. Can you flush that out? What do you mean by that? Let's repeat that. In terms of meditation, contemplative practice, it's not one prayer I use. I use a, a plethora of things from listening to online Bibles to 70 soul music to center myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How else are you changing your perspectives or changing your lenses or helping others in your congregation do that? By having a conversation, by going into different spaces, by engaging in moments like this, right? Uh, doing the panel at U of I. Now, I don't know if it's a good thing or bad thing. I totally forget what was said on that panel. So that <laughs> I don't know if I wasn't paying attention. I don't remember exactly what you said either, but I do remember uh, there was a couple of times when you definitely called things out a little bit and was like, this isn't all just um, good words. We have to. <laughs> you have to do something like, with it. Yeah. And I think that's my. <laughs> so to answer you about, I read. I look at documentaries. I do all the basic stuff. Like I, it's nothing magical here. I do all the basic stuff, but I think I'm old school. So I think reading a damn book helps. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sorry to say it that way, but we got far too many folks who just don't read no more. And mm-hmm. I think picking up a blankety blank, blank, blank book mm-hmm. and reading them mm-hmm. can help you see beyond your word. Like, and I'm not trying to be that Gen Xer that waxes on old social media and phones have messed up, mm-hmm. but because you can still do that on your phone, right? Mm-hmm. I got audio books on my phone. I got digital books. And so we live in a time, Kelly, where people think YouTube videos, Facebook means I did my own research and proof texting your listeners. That's finding the evidence you need to support your argument, even if the thing you're reading doesn't support your argument, mm-hmm. but you're going to flip things it. Things out of we, context. Yeah. We, we're in that era. Uh-huh. Like, we literally did not run the president, the, the former president out of the White House when he said it's an alternative fact. Uh-huh. Like people. Oh, OK. Sounds good. <laughs> that for me, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Like, all right, this is enough here. OK. Like he just said that he making up his own facts and we're OK with that. And mm-hmm. I think that ignorance, ignorance, ignorance is if you don't have the intellectual capacity, if you haven't processed new information, if you can't do any of that, like, my God, mm-hmm. you can't have the empathy. You can't have, see the other side. What have you been exposed to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is somebody down in St. Joe's or one of them Southern towns that I speed through when I'm going to Tennessee and Southern, and I'm still in Illinois speeding through them. Like I'm not stopping here. Uh, if they've never encountered a Kelly or a Terrence, Mm-hmm. then they'll never have empathy for Kelly or Terrence. And, mm-hmm. and I ain't talking about looking at this on MTV. I'm talking about read a damn book. Mm-hmm. What are these guys talking about? What is this, this these gals talking about? What are their lived experiences? Can I resonate with that? Right. Can I find kind of a common ground with that? Right. But there's an uncomfortableness know. when you yeah. uh, start to venture outside your comfort zone, the created 
bubble of your reality and there's some reckoning that needs to happen when you do mm -hmm. that. And so not only have we not been trained to listen, but we haven't been trained to kind of sit with our own uncomfortableness, whether that be, you know, toxic positivity or spiritual bypassing, or we do it in everything. It's not just about social justice issues. Um, you know, put a smile on that face. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not all about that. So yeah, I love you. You mentioned the matrix. And that's one of my favorite movies too. And um, I just feel like there's, there's a lot of benefits to be gained. When you actually go outside your, your reality bubble, and see the world as it really is. But you also have to come to terms and be comfortable with suffering and lament and sadness mm -hmm. and darkness and, and all that stuff. And I don't know that we teach people how to do that. We don't teach balance in the faith. Yeah. Uh, it, it definitely shouldn't be all lament, pain, suffering, cries out to the Lord. The, the scripture says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't <laughs> stay there. I don't take up resonance there. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Mm -hmm. um, but we also don't have like all joy all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, not the joy. We, we do suppose have joy, but we don't have all happiness and cheery feelings all the time. Mm -hmm. And so for me as Terrence, Reverend TLT, if I find a person on either extreme, I'm telling them they need to go get some help. Like, mm -hmm. what are you hiding from? What are you running from? So if nothing ever phases you, oh, that's not good. Yeah. But if everything phases you, that's also not good, right? Yeah. Like, okay. Oh, I love that. I love that. So conversely, I mean, I think that hope is something that uh, keeps us keeps us on the path walking and not living in the in the valley of shadows. And one of the things that I um, have read recently is by um, an organizer, Miriam Kaba, and she says, hope is a discipline. I thought that was really such an interesting perspective. So we talked a little bit about this, but what spiritual practices do you engage in that help you tune into that reality and not the oppressive systems and continue to have hope? Uh, traditional prayer fasting, trying to stay in the space of joy. I think black joy mm -hmm. is a weapon. So I'm not one that kills, kills joy. Uh, you probably saw me looking down a couple of times and that's because I hit my desk and I knocked over my joys. My, some of my Star Wars action figures I collected and, and I collect and I get a kick out of just, you know, pose them and shit. And then that brings me joy. Mm -hmm. And that takes, believe it or not, you'd be surprised what that does in taking the pain of the day away. Yeah. The struggle of the day away. Tell the me. Frustration said, of the day away. You said um, black joy is a weapon. Tell me. Black joy is a weapon. And, and here, here's what I often tell people. And I'll have to send it to you. I wrote it on Facebook and I probably should have pulled it up. And I, and I point out that black joy is a weapon. And I wrote this this piece around the time the Black Panther movie came out. And there were people that were really trying to stifle the joys, you know, even within the black community. And I said, I, I, notice, if you will, our enslaved ancestors got beat harder for singing songs than they did working in quiet. Uh, jazz and blues were created, then stifled because folks didn't like their joy. That's why they tell us the give up on the black church, the black 
organizations, the HBCUs, Historically Black College and University, because they're not up to standard or up to par. They take the, the, the institutions that create joy. That's why they tell us to give up on the black church institution that create joy. Right. So we're back to that. Um, even in, in hip hop, there's a reason why, you know, they struggled with it in the beginning. And they stopped struggling when we made a cultural shift and start over singing about gangster rap and materialism. And so I think that we need to realize that our joy, and this is what I tell out my Afro pessimist folks, white folks ain't never been scared of black pessimism. They have been afraid of black joy. Mm. And so I'm never going to keep my head down. I'm never going to let them see me broken to quote George Jackson. I'm going to push. I'm going to continue to operate in the space of outward joy, even in my worst moments because somebody may see that and need that and be empowered and energized. Somebody's joy might energize me. And so the minute we realize that our joy, our black joy is a weapon, we'll be okay. Mm. I love that. And I'm sitting here and envisioning some of the things that you said, and you're right. There's just this huge energy that flows from that when, when I've been able to see moments of black joy. Um, Oh, that's really powerful. I like that. Yeah. So um, I could I could talk with you forever. I think you're fascinating. Uh, I think we resonate on a lot of the same levels. I mm-hmm. really like to close out these interviews with some rapid fire questions. So okay, here I did look at those. I, I, I'll tell you, see, <laughs> that's what caught my eye. The descriptive stuff, like we're gonna go off script, but the rapid fire questions <laughs> caught my eye. So first of all, when I spoke with you last, I saw you had a, I think you had a Batman watch and we, uh, we found out that you're a big Batman fan. So why do you like Batman so much? I like Batman because, and I'm speaking historically, I'm not speaking of the new way they're writing them that the damn millennials done messed up. Historically, (laughs) Batman was a paragon of justice, perfection, determination. He had a trauma in his life and he vowed that nobody else would do it. I ain't going to lie. I still like Batman, even though now they're trying to make him the anti-hero and, uh, you know, the new writers. He's a problematic billionaire and eh, don't care. Uh, <laughs> so I I love Batman. Uh, probably if I had to pick my things that I love is Batman, Star Wars, and then maybe Star Trek. Uh, I don't know, but that's why I like Batman. Batman is my boy. Uh, I, I wish this was a video podcast because I'd show you the batman board game i bought when i was in high school oh wow time of the movie in 89 and i found it on ebay oh. and I purchased it again and i was the happiest <laughs> man and i can't get my sons to play with me because they told me that's weird but i got a batman board game that oh that's super love. cool so, uh again they won't play it with me because they're little bastards but i love them anyway <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, as a as a fellow Gen Xer, I think it's pretty awesome, and I'll play the Batman board game with you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I really have come to love uh, superheroes and comic books. I'm I'm not a big comic book person, but I like superhero movies. But um, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of space within them to really touch on these social transformation issues and in a lot of ways they're on the cutting edge of um mainstreaming characters and archetypes that are new to people so i really appreciate them and and bringing that into reality and you know superman was written by two jewish men and talking about being 
he was an alien and he was somebody that had a lot of power and a lot of good things to bring, but was marginalized. So he was, mm-hmm. he was. Yep. So what's something that people get wrong about you? Oh, that I'm actually mean. They, they, get they it think that, that you're mean and you're not. I'm not. I, I'm no nonsense, depending on what the topic is. So if we're talking about things of race, justice, et cetera, then yeah, I'm a blunt spark person. But if I'm just sitting at the bar at Neal Street, you come talk to me about the game and, and, and life and those kind of things. People think that I'm mean. People think that I'm mean. The other thing people get wrong is people think I'm a flirt. And I'm really not flirting with you. I just am a spiritual care provider. I'm a pastor. I can tell you're having a bad day and I'm just trying to make your day awesome. But unfortunately, you know, you, hey, how's your day? Oh, my God, I have a husband. No, no, no I'm just asking how your day was because you're standing here crying. And it was weird. So <laughs> dry your tears, lady. I'm just <laughs> I'm just being nice. <laughs> I'm just being nice. So I think those are the two things that people get wrong. Huh. Interesting. Um, where do you see the divine as most alive for you in this season? Uh, through my children. Hmm. Through my children. I have taken some personal hits. I was supposed to get married in June. It didn't happen. And I'm just in, been in the space of healing. And so I'm reminded of the divine through my children and the love they provide me. And even the smiles we get over at Bridgewater when we can help somebody. Mm. Um, I also see the divine in nature. Um, fall is my favorite season. Fall is a reboot season preparation for reboot and everything we didn't get last summer we'll get next summer coming up because fall is a preparation season fall is a reboot let's let's get it wind up and let's get it situated and we can have the dormancy but come out blossoming Mm -hmm. i see the divine Mm -hmm. what's uh one thing in your life that might seem ordinary to other people but is sacred for you Ironically, <laughs> my action figures, um, they're sacred. Many of them represent childhood. Many of them represent being in a better financial place. And I can afford a collector's thing or two represent kind of this thing that I did together. I think the other thing that's sacred to me that might seem normal to people is honestly my my two jobs uh, as pastor and as executive director. Um, more so the executive director, because people kind of expect the pastor to see be sacred. But the fact that I'm out here on the front lines doing justice work is sacred to me. Hmm. What are you deeply grateful for right now? Uh, my village, my sisters, uh, my brothers, my babies, uh, my growing village here in Champaign. I am deeply grateful for them because, as I said, one who is in mourning and who can't always show it and talk about it, it impacts you and so to have people surround you that loves you knows you hold you accountable but are there for you has been phenomenal and i thank god i can be there for them one day mm-hmm. like like this i mean under better circumstances but still journey with them i appreciate every last one of them mm-hmm. so you've thrown out a ton of um people that are kind of good intellectual people to be aware of, but do you have a specific book that you might recommend to the audience? The best book I can recommend to the audience right now. If you're interested in AME history, 
the African Methodist Episcopal Church, a history by Reverend Dr. Dennis Dickerson is a phenomenal book. It outlines in amazing detail the history and chronology of the AME Church. The second book I probably would recommend is Dr. King's Why We Can't Wait uh, that deals with the aftermath of him being in Chicago and the impact of bringing the movement to the North. I think there's some critical lessons in there that we don't explore. And that's right off the top of my head. That, those are like, I'm sure if I thought about it, thought about it, I'd come up with some other ones, but full stop right off the top of my head is that one. Mm. If somebody wants to learn more about liberation or humanist theology, is there a book that you'd recommend? Uh, I would go to the beginning, of course, James Cone, The Theology of Liberation. Reverend Dr. Larry, Reverend Dr. Katie Cannon, Katie's Cannon. Pamela Lightsey, Our Lives Matter is a book on theology. Of course, I said the Latin American one, of course, James Cone's Liberation of Theology and probably the Cross and the Lynching Tree. And that's mm-hmm. just given a broad spectrum. Perfect. So anything kind of top of mind right now that you want to refer people to locally or at the church or with your volunteer, your other job? Do you want to give them a shout out or? Uh, man, as always, I got to thank the team of uh, Bethel AME Champagne. Um, amazing team. They do amazing work. I got to thank my sister, Reverend Neil Power, uh, Hazel Crest United Methodist Church. Uh, the team at Bridgewater, Sullivan, Tatiana, Ammons, uh, Candace Jennings, Mary Benson, Jasmine Wilson, Josh Payne. It's so many people, as as we say in church culture, I get in trouble if I start naming them. But I definitely got to name my babies, especially the two boys who are here with me, Centrell and Devin. They are my light, my rock. Everything I do, I do for them. And of course, I love all of my children, Charles and I, Emerson. But those two guys, we've developed a bond being down here and it transcend father son it's a man bond i cannot explain it but it's three dudes in here and we do dude <laughs> stuff and it's awesome mm-hmm. it's awesome yeah it really is awesome and, and thank you for being willing you know I, I will say this and this has been uh, and i appreciate the tone of the podcast because most times people invite me to do this stuff it turns into a ranting session it's not easy being a pastor down here people think because you have highs here and as you know uh this is a progressive liberal town. It's not. It's like living in the South. Like, it's like living in Mississippi, man. Mm-hmm. And so being a radical left of center pastor that like gay folks and women and took the flags out the pulpit, it hasn't earned me a lot of friends. And mm-hmm. so I appreciate you being a friend and, and reaching out and saying, hey, let's talk. Come on the podcast. Because generally folks run the other way. And so you're going to giggle, but that's generally like, oh, it's Reverend Thomas. I'm going to go over here. No, so I got to find my people. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we're all about at Soul Care, too, is is just being pretty inclusive and setting a really big table and talking all about spirituality and everyday life and how it impacts you, how it transforms you, mm-hmm. um, where are your questions, where are you feeling on the margins, how's it coming apart, how's it coming back together. Those are all things that I have a vision for at soul care and really creating this really welcoming safe brave space for people to connect and not to feel alone i agree with that 110 percent, 110 percent. so i appreciate you i do well thank you thank you and this has been a great conversation and i really enjoyed it and uh you know one of these days we'll have to have a whiskey and uh 
chat some more. Indeed. I look forward to it. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everything is Spiritual and taking time to nourish your soul. Tune in each week for a little community and a lot of conversation. Or subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. For more resources around spiritual exploration, restoration, and transformation, be sure to sign up on our mailing list at experiencesoulcare.com. Visit our website for information on retreats, workshops, and services from our partners. Or better yet, come visit our welcoming space in Urbana to say hi and get a steaming cup of tea. Soul Care Urban Retreat Center is a warm, welcoming, and accessible place for you to refresh, renew, and restore your mind, body, heart, and soul. We set a great big table, and everyone is welcome. Until next week, be well.